We have just released issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove, and I'm with Leanne Whitney. Together, the two of us are going to introduce this video with Peter Russell called Cultivating Peace. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you, Jeff. Lovely to be with you again. It's a pleasure to be with you. I should let our viewers know right away that last July we released an interview uh, that you made of me in 2005 titled Evolution of Consciousness. In fact, for viewers who might be interested, I'm going to link to it in the upper right-hand corner of, of your screen for those who can get that link. And this video with Peter Russell is part of the same series made in 2005. Why don't we talk a little bit about who you were back then and, and why you made these interviews? That's right, Jeff. It's almost 20 years ago who I was back then. So I was actually uh, working in the film industry, documentary films. Um, I'd completed my first film and these interviews with you and Peter and others that we'll continue to release here on New Thinking Aloud were all part of a second documentary that I was making around the evolution of human consciousness. At the time, I think I tentatively titled it Thirsting for God. And uh, I wanted to um, interview people like yourself and Peter, uh, researchers in the field of consciousness studies in expanding human awareness where how to optimize human potential where we might be going as a species and uh yeah so it was yourself peter russell gary zukov russell targ uh and you all contributed different ideas and themes and here in this one with uh peter russell absolutely the idea that consciousness is fundamental uh peter's a, a longtime tm practitioner as you know and uh he, physicist and atheist, I, I believe, uh, but moved uh, from the scientific realm to dialogue about actually the merging of science and spirituality and what that would mean uh, for us as a species to not have them compete, but to have them actually work in an interconnected way. Um, and again, that was at the heart of what also I was trying to communicate through the film. So I thought Peter was a, a perfect voice for that. Well, we'll be releasing over the next couple of weeks the third and fourth interviews in this series with Russell Targ and, and Gary Zukov. This interview with Peter, incidentally, takes place on the waterfront in uh, Sausalito, California, uh, on a boat, Peter's boat, I gather. Yes, that's exactly. I met Peter in his home like I had come to meet you in Las Vegas. Uh, 
that's what I did with each of the interviews. I traveled to everybody's home and uh, I, I like that. I like to be able to see you in your own habitat, actually, uh, and be able to have these these dialogues human to human. Because, yes, it's about the scholarship, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Uh, but why I also selected all uh, um, you for is it's the idea of also embodying. It's not it, it's knowledge we have to become. It's really, and uh, I really feel that you, Peter, uh, Gary, and, and Russell all represented that in a really strong, each in your own unique way, but uh, a collective body of knowledge that had to do with, yes, the wisdom traditions, yes, book knowledge, but an embodied sense of both science and spirituality, if you will, and deep inner knowing. I noticed during all three of the interviews we're about to release, they, it was very emotional for you to address these topics. You were going through something in your own life at, at the time. I guess maybe the best word for it would be an awakening. Uh, absolutely right. So back in 2000, which I believe I've mentioned uh, on other interviews here on the channel, I had what's known as a pure consciousness event. So I had it was in I was in a yoga room at the time, but um, I wasn't actually sitting in a meditation pose. I grabbed my mat. I was walking out of the room, and um, in the fraction of a second, uh, I knew that consciousness is all there is, and that knowledge is structured in it. So from 2000 to 2003, I'd been working on other projects, and then I started to build this project that these interviews all come from, uh, and psychic abilities, the intuitive self, authentic power, those were all themes that I was looking to explore in the movie. And I like to think about emotion as energy in motion. And so for me at that time, uh, to have had that deep personal experience and then to be reaching out to other scholars, people working in the field who had been working in the field for a while, again, like yourself, Peter, Gary, it was, it was a lot of emotion and energy that was moving through me in order to uh, create that project. And it's worth letting our audience know that although you never completed this documentary, you did go on to enter a doctoral degree program and you completed that and uh, published your book on Patanjali and Jung and uh, about which we've done, I think, three previous interviews on this channel. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I was making a movie about the evolution of consciousness. I didn't have, the, there was something about the third act that just wasn't gelling for me. And instead of trying to force it, I was swept at 4.30 one morning. I, uh, I, I woke up and was guided to uh, Google Pacifica Graduate Institute in the middle of a dream state, which would be perfect for anyone studying Carl Jung. And I went on to uh, get a PhD in Jungian-oriented depth psychology, which of course is, is depth psychology in its own way, is, is consciousness studies. So there's uh, definitely an overarching picture here, and it feels really fulfilling to me now almost 20 years later to be releasing these videos of timeless wisdom. I'm delighted to have you here with me on New Thinking Aloud. I hope that you'll join us as a guest host and be on the channel frequently, as a matter of fact. 
I would love that, Jeff. Really. I, I love to explore consciousness, to explore the frontiers of knowledge. And uh, I would love to continue interviewing and being part of the channel. So thank you so much for that offer. And now let's watch you interview Peter Russell on the waterfront in Sausalito, California in 2005. So this is the basic conflict I think that I've come to in my own journey or my own quest. Mm -hmm. um, which actually makes me very emotional to talk about it because I really feel in general as humans we're all seeking very few things which would be love and peace. But yet I feel like we're at this time in history where, like, I can't even turn on the television or pick up a newspaper without seeing so much violence or almost the opposite end of that extreme, to yep. just very fear-based. Um, I just feel like I'm living in a very fear-based society. I'm trying to reconcile those two things. And so I know yourself, obviously, as a seeker and all the different work that you've done, my biggest question is, where are we, you know, are we evolving as a species? Where are we going? I'm looking for those answers because I'm so mm. conflicted within mm. myself to mm -hmm. try to reconcile it because it, it, it doesn't feel good. You know, the whole idea of the love and peace feels great, but yet that's not what I see right. in my external yeah. world. Yeah. I think you really hit upon the, the essence of the whole crisis we're in. I think firstly, what you're saying is true. What we're all looking for is peace, love, to be at ease, satisfaction. But what's interesting there, what we're looking for is something inner. Basically, we're looking for a more satisfying state of consciousness. We're looking to feel better. And that's true of absolutely everything. I think it's true of every creature. No one wants to suffer. No one wants to be in pain. That's true for all of us. Where, where the conflict comes from is the way we set about finding that. And we live in a culture that tells us, if you're not at peace... If you're not feeling at ease inside, go and do something, go and buy something, go and get a new experience. So we become focused on the outside world, and so we're competing out there, looking for the things we think are going to make us happy. And they don't. Well, they do for a short bit. You know, you, you go and buy yourself a new jacket, or you, you know, have a great gourmet meal, or you feel great temporarily, and then the next day or a week later it's worn off, and you're looking for something else. And so we're continually taking from the environment, trying to find this, this inner peace. And this is where I think all the spiritual traditions come in, because what they've seen in one way or another is, is like, hang on, what you're looking for is not out there, it's inside us. And so to really be at peace, we need to look at what is it in ourselves that stops us being at peace, which is really how do we, how do we create discontent for ourselves? Because I believe the mind, what I call the natural mind, is actually a peaceful state of mind. But we continually make ourselves uncomfortable because we think, oh, I'm missing something, I can't be happy, I don't have enough money, I don't have the right friends, I need to be in a new house, I need a new job, whatever it is. So it's all of that that breeds this discontent. And then we start going out there trying to take it. And it leads to, firstly, a lot of conflict between people who are all trying to take, you know, you've got what I want, and so right, we're right, fighting right, for right. it, at least a lot of that. 
it leads to a lot of what I call just the insane busyness of life. We're just doing, 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 never taking time to stop. We're getting more and more stressed. Particularly in this culture, we get more frenetic. Like how much can I do in the day? Is the assumption the more I do, the more peace I'm going to feel. This, I think, is the sad joke about human beings. We're so busy doing. Right. We never get a chance to stop and actually be at ease. And we're so busy worrying about whether we're going to be happy tomorrow or five years' time. We never actually stop to be happy in the present moment. Yeah, and it's that whole thing, you know, America, where we are, you know, founded on that pursuit of happiness. Yeah. So you pursue it, but do you, uh, do you ever stop to be it? Exactly. <laughs> so and I think, yeah, and this is because we're pursuing it in the wrong way. We're looking outwardly for it. I think the pursuit of happiness is absolutely fine and it's natural and that's what we should be doing. But what we should really be questioning is, are we going about finding it the right way? I'll tell you a very interesting statistic. They started doing studies back in 1957 on how many people in America felt they were happy with what they had in life. And back in 1957, 30% of the US population felt happy with what they had. And they've been doing these studies regularly over time. And now, what is it, 35, maybe 40 years later, the number of, you know, whatever it is, the number of cars per household has gone up, the number of square foot we live in, the number of TV channels, the foods that are available right. in supermarkets, all of this stuff, we didn't even have computers then, all this stuff that's meant to improve the quality of life has expanded enormously. You do the studies, the number of people who are happy with what they have is exactly the same, 30%. All, none of this has actually made us any happier. It's made maybe life a bit more comfortable, but it's also made us busier. Look at computers now. I mean, how many of us, how much time do we spend each week on our computers, uselessly trying to sort out bits of new software, doing this, loading stuff, getting rid of viruses, whatever it is. Back in the old days when we just sort of wrote letters, it was a lot simpler. Right, right, so right. our life is being taken over by this. By the complexity, yeah. Um, so basically... Is that the crisis, I guess, that I feel? Or, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, it's, it's like, it seems like all of these things are meant to be very positive. I mean, and certainly the web, the World Wide Web, it connects us yep. all around the world instantaneously, which is a beautiful thing. So you can look at some of these evolutionary things that are happening, um, especially in the technology world. You know, they're, they're great. They're serving us in a lot of ways. Um, but yet it's almost like, I feel humanity in general is so desensitized. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that whole thing about love. At the end of the day, we're loving beings, I think. I mean, yeah. that's what I feel. Actually, it's what I feel in my gut. Um, but at the same time, all this technology and different things, I think, desensitize us. Like mm -hmm. When I read about the ancient cultures, I almost have a longing to wish that I was alive at that time, mm -hmm. like maybe the time of the Native Americans yeah. before America yeah. was even founded, because um, it just seems more peaceful. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know that to be true, but... Who knows? I mean, it, it had its advantages, probably had much more time to be peaceful, and yet it was probably a lot harder life. You had to, you know, you're out in the fields, maybe, you know, tending your food, whatever it was, and whatever the weather. We, we have things pretty easy and comfortable. I think what we need to do is take the choice back to have more time for ourselves. And what's easy is to be sucked into it by the computers, the email, or the television. We have to learn to say, no, you know, what do we want? It's, I think with computers, it's a bit like, imagine books have suddenly been created and you found a library. 
You don't have to spend your whole right. life sitting in the library <laughs> reading all this stuff. Right. We have to pick and choose. And I think it's about getting our priorities right and saying, yes, we need to use these tools for certain things. But also a priority should be, I think for everybody, is taking time for ourselves. Right. And actually exploring ourselves and finding that state of ease within ourselves and realizing it isn't going to come just from continually chasing after fame or fashion or friends or whatever it is we think is really well friends are important let's not dismiss that but chasing after the things we think are going to make us happy right because it, it, within the, the scheme of friends i suppose you find that love you find yeah, that meaning yeah, yeah. Um, friendship's really important what i meant there is people chasing after thinking if i just get to know this person that's going to make me okay it's like because what we end up doing is using people just like we use objects you know we use our cars we use our computers and we start using people is this person going to help me get on Right. And that's the side I'm referring to, right, not true right. friendship. Is this person going to help me get on in life? Or is this person standing in the way of what I want? When we get into that thinking, then we're not treating people as other human beings. We're just treating them as objects. For right, it's the whole social climbing yeah. Almost, yeah. aspect to, to viewing people, yeah. So where do you think we are as humanity? I mean, is this where we're meant to be? Is it, Do you feel like... We're... I think we're, we're at... An incredibly significant point in our evolution, probably the most important, most challenging, most dangerous, and yet the one of the greatest opportunities ever. I think we, you take the bigger picture, I mean, what there's two things that I think distinguishes us from other animals that, that's made us different, from, particularly from the great apes and nearest cousins. The first is that we can speak to each other. We have verbal language. Most creatures have some form of language, but we can actually sit here and talk, and I can take my ideas, my experiences, my feelings, I can encode it in words, you can listen, we can share our ideas, and you know, through mediums like television, we can share them with a wide audience. Okay. So through language, we are, we've become a collective learning species, and the internet is just the latest bit of technology. We are one single mind, almost, learning together. And that's given us couple of things give us the ability to really understand the world you can say the whole of our science is a collective learning about the world and then the second thing that makes us different is the fact that we have these wonderful flexible manipulative organs the human hand the human thumb the fact that i can actually touch all my fingers mm -hmm. a chimp can do that but it can't it can't rotate its thumb around and do that which makes this a wonderful manipulative organ and so we started manipulating the world we started you know making clay pots we started making clothes doing all this stuff, you combine that with an understanding of the world, you start creating technologies that manipulate the world more effectively for you, and so you start getting a culture which starts getting creative, and then we start changing the world. I mean, everything we've done, we've basically taken the earth in various forms, whether they're created with plastic or stone or wood, whatever it is, and we're remoulding the planet to our own ends. And that's where this belief system's got stuck in. We think, ah, the more I can remould the planet, the more I can create, the more I can do, the better things are going to be. And that's also, I think, created a sense of self-centeredness, sort of an egocentricity about human beings, where we get focused on me and what can I do. And so because of that, we, we lost sight of what is really useful for the planet. So the crisis we've reached is, We've had this incredible burst of creativity over the last few thousand years, but particularly the last couple of hundred years, or even the last few decades, yeah. which is now threatening 
our continued existence here. If we continue taking from the planet, using up the resources, throwing out our rubbish, polluting the planet, it's clear we're not going to be here much longer. The planet won't be habitable by humans. I don't think we're going to kill the planet, but I think it's probably going to be, well, at least we're going to destroy our civilization. There may be pockets of humanity left, but it's getting pretty serious. So it's a real wake-up call, and it's saying, great language, technology, it's taken us out of just being animals. It's given us this extra thing, it's expanded our consciousness, and we have to move on from there. It's like we, our, our awareness has to catch up with the technology and the power we have. And I think that's the essence of the crisis, that we have this incredible ability to manipulate, change the world, to do things. And yet, our consciousness is still stuck back in almost Stone Age consciousness. We're still thinking, what do I need for my own personal survival? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is the part that makes me very emotional and unable to understand because what you're describing, I mean, we're destroying the mother. We're destroying what has given birth to us. And again as humanity how can we not look around and see that how can how you know how closed down are we um actually like we were talking about earlier just even getting on an airplane today great technology amazing but to walk into that airport and to see what you have to go through just to get on an airplane because of the lack of trust between human beings yeah um again it's gut-wrenching for me like i So, I guess my, you know, one of my biggest questions is, what do we have to do? Like, how do we wake up? <laughs> I think I think there's two levels. The first is being aware of the situation that we're talking about now, and I think the good thing there is more and more people are. Just what's happened the last twenty years with the environmental lobby, people realizing the long-term consequences. This is it. May not all governments may be following you know the advice of environmentalists but it's becoming more and more mainstream we're in a process of awakening to the seriousness of the situation and realizing it comes back to us as human beings and that ultimately the way through is by changing our values by waking up how do we do that is then the next question and for me i think that's what all the great spiritual traditions have been working on and i think all the great traditions have come from people, individuals, who have, in one way or another, let go of this holding on to things and got in touch with their own inner essence and found that right there inside us is the ease, the peace, the love, the fulfillment that we're looking for. And they then started teaching people various techniques, practices to do that. And I think that's the most important thing, is how do we help people rediscover that level of consciousness which i think is there underneath all of us it's not something we have to create waking up is not about i'm going to become in life i'm going to find this different state of consciousness i've got to create something it's more undoing what we're doing i think the natural state of consciousness is a state of ease we're in touch with our hearts i think animals are there you watch it you watch a dog the dog's got nothing to do it doesn't start getting bored walking around and complaining it'll just lie there and look up and watch you you know it it's in a natural state occasionally it will get upset or lose that piece but right. i think it's with i think the natural state and this is what i think many spiritual teachers have seen is this state of ease and then we start worrying about whether we've got the right things or not 
we start moving into fear, I think most fear is about, am I going to be happy in, you know, tomorrow? What's someone going to say? What's going to happen here? I think fear is useful when we really meet danger, but most of the time we have fear when there's no real danger. And all of that clouds our thinking, and we get caught up in our stories and our worries and what's happening, and we never touch this other level of consciousness which is there. And that's why most spiritual traditions have some technique of meditation, some form of spiritual practice, which is about calming down, even shutting off this verbal thinking. And when you do that, when you cut off the verbal thinking, and it's like, ah, oh, God, this is, yes, I remember now. This is how it is. There's this state of ease. This is my natural state. But I think a lot of people go through their whole lives hardly ever touching it. Right. But and now as a scientist, you you know, obviously may be able to talk a little bit more about this, but we have two sides to our brain. We have a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And the right, I believe, is the feminine side and the left is the masculine side. And the left is all rational mm-hmm. brain thinking. Um, so is it possible that we've almost shut down our right hemisphere a lot through the evolution? Like a lot of it's about thinking. Like we think so much, right. we've, like we've lost the ability to feel almost. I don't know. I don't think I, I don't think it's to do with the left and right sides of the brain because well, I think that that's a metaphor for what's happening because both sides of the brain are active. When you look at the brain, both sides are active. Doesn't we shut down one side and. And the more we're learning about the brain, it's like different, all parts of the brain seem to be involved in everything. But I think, as a metaphor, it's right. We've got too connected with the thinking mode, and because of that, because we're caught in the thinking, we lose the feeling. And particularly in a culture which is very male-dominated, and it's that achievement, success, doing side, working things out, we've the, the, femi- the more feminine side, the feeling side, has been, it hasn't really been developed and it's atrophied, particularly, particularly in the men. And so I think that's definitely a part of it, definitely a part of it. But it all comes back to the same thing that we're over, we overthink. Thinking is a very useful thing, but we don't need to do it the whole time. If I look at my thoughts, I reckon 95% of my thoughts are a complete waste of time. <laughs> really? You know, I'm sort of thinking about what am I going to do later. Let me think about that when I get there. Or what happened yesterday, or what's so and so going to think of me. All this stuff, I mean, I'm driving down the road. I don't need to be thinking while I'm driving. I need to be watching the road. But my mind is often off distracted about this, or I'm passing a building, and that sets me off thinking about somebody I used to know. It goes on and on. The other day I was driving, and I suddenly noticed... You know, I checked my speed and it said, you know, I was doing 60 and it was 60, it was 65 on the freeway. And I thought, this is perfect, I'm doing perfect speed. And I was in a very peaceful state of consciousness before I did this. And the next thing I remembered, remember how it was when I was a kid, when I, my father would do 60, we'd urge him on. Then I was thinking of the car we had and where we used to live. And five minutes later, I'd been off on a whole train of completely useless thought. I, if I'd been just present, I'd have probably been driving more safely. I'd have been much more aware of the road. I'd probably been feeling much better. Because that's the other thing, when we get lost in a train of thought, we lose touch with ourselves, we lose touch with the present, and we generally create tension for ourselves. So I think the skill is learning how to switch off thinking when we don't need it, or lower its intensity when we don't need it. That, I think, is the key skill we need to learn. Right. 
but obviously, you know, humans were created with the brain capacity to think like that, yeah. again, as opposed to dogs or, yeah. you know, other yeah. species. So do you think it's an evolutionary arc where we've maybe hit the peak of what we should be doing with the thinking aspect? Yeah, I think it's like with anything, it's learning how to use it constructively. And we've got, we overuse it. So it's, yeah, we've hit, we've hit that peak where we need to think. It's wonderful to thinking, reasoning, planning, examining our experience, reflecting upon what's happening, learning. All of that is great. And we need to reclaim the other aspect of our consciousness, which we've lost sight of, which is the feeling, the being present, the loving, being in touch with our own inner essence, all of that. We need to reclaim that as well. So it's like we've gone overboard with the thinking, and it's now time to say, okay, great, hold that. Now let's bring the other aspect of our consciousness that we've lost, bring that back in so that we have the two together. Right. And then we can move from one to the other. We need to think when thinking is appropriate, and then need to sit back and be and feel and be in touch with ourselves when that's appropriate. Yeah. And do you think that thinking mechanism has to do with with the fear and aggression-based sort of external accumulation yeah. of, of power, really, yeah. is what it is at the end of the day. It's like trying to find power, and instead of finding inner power, it's yeah. external power. Yeah, it is. And just, I mean, how much of our thinking is taken up by planning? For most people, if you look at it, probably 50% of it is planning stuff, planning what you're going to do, what you're going to say. And it's all about how can we be more in control of things, control of other people. It all comes back to this belief system. If only I can just get things right. right. Get my life right, get other people to be the right way, say the right things for me. Whatever it is, I'll be happy. Yes. And we're so busy in this worrying, planning mode, we're never taking the chance to actually be happy in the present. That's the irony. We're so busy thinking about the future, we never actually enjoy the present moment. Yeah, and again, it just makes me so emotional when you say this because I think if we trusted as a species that we're really so much more than we currently think we are, if we really, instead of trying to find the supernatural or a belief in God, and I almost hate to use that word because it comes with so much baggage, but let's just say a belief in the divine presence, Mm -hmm. if we organically trusted that instead of continually searching for it mm-hmm. we'd be alive in the womb so to speak we would yeah. be we would be able to surrender we would we wouldn't want have to control because we know we're part of a dance mm-hmm. a, a divine dance yeah. so to speak yeah. um, but again then this really comes back to what we're, everything that we're saying the rational brain the rational mind because because of science it's, it, you can't empirically prove the supernatural so to speak, I don't think. I mean, I don't think so either. And I don't think we need to. And what I find fascinating is I think all the stuff we're talking about, I spend a lot of time talking about this stuff in corporations, where if I mentioned anything about the supernatural or even spiritual, people would run a mile. What we're talking about is very practical stuff that doesn't need to involve the supernatural. I mean, that, not to say the supernatural isn't there, but if we're just talking about how can we make better use of our lives and how can we... I think we all know that we think too much we get caught up in this world and that we need to relate to each other in different ways we all know that so i think it's a question of just how can you help people do that and i think the good news is there's more and more people recognizing this is the case i mean if you just look at the growth of interest in things like yoga meditation 
spiritual development, personal development that's been going on the last 10, 20 years. It's phenomenal. So people are changing. People are looking. And I think that's that's one of the things. Of, you know, I'm not, I'm not a dog or another kind of animal, but the thing about being a human is we all have this desire to have meaning. Yeah. It's like man's search for meaning. Yeah. I think that's the title yeah. of a book, you know, a really yes. good book, actually. I think the bit you touched on right at the beginning is important there, is this thing is to recognize that we're all looking for the same thing. We're all looking to be more at ease, to find peace, to find love in ourselves. Not, look for love outside, but it's really about finding love in ourselves. I think it's the experience of loving is actually more important than the experience of being loved. We look for being loved. That is what gives life meaning. And to recognize we all want that. It's not just that I want to be more at ease, more at peace, more in touch with love myself. We all do. And so instead of seeing you as somebody, is this person going to help me be more in touch with myself? It's like, oh, here's somebody else who's looking for exactly the same thing. Everybody on the planet is looking for the same thing. And that opens up, I think, a lot of compassion, a lot of understanding, and a whole new way of relating. It gives meaning to how we relate. Instead of how can I get you to give me what I need, is to turn that around. How can I interact with you in such a way that you feel more at ease, that you feel loved, that you feel happier? What we tend to do is because I'm wanting things for myself, we fall into this stupid game that like, in order to get you to give me what I want, I should be nasty to you. I'll be mean to you. Right, you'll <laughs> manipulate me. I'll manipulate you, I'll control you. And then maybe, you know, you'll realize you should be nice to me and then I'll be nice to you. Which is, that's what happens in so many relationships. It's like, you piss me off, so I'm going to piss you off. And then you'll realize the error of your ways to stop pissing me off. But if we to break that and just say, okay, you, you're wanting to be more at ease. How can I make you feel at ease? How can I interact with you in such a way that you feel more loved, more appreciated? And if you come back to me in the same way, relationships change. I've seen the most fantastic changes happen just by two people saying, how can we give what the other person wants to each other? Right. Rather than how can I take the other person? That shift is profound. Yeah, and so that begs the question to me, where did the rift in humanity come? <clears throat> how, how did we get to this place? You know, is it the breakdown of the family structure? Or where, where has it always been part of the human drama? Like, you know, why aren't we born with that sense of of love and inner power again, you know? I think we are. I think we are born with it. I think it gets beaten out of us, conditioned out of us. Partly we're born into families where the parents themselves are not enlightened. They're part of that old system. So we fall into that almost from the moment we're born. Our educational system, the whole of our society, everything is geared towards the out there. Nothing's teaching us about how we should be inside. And I don't think there's any single thing that caused the breakdown. I see it more the seed has been there all along. I think part of it comes back to the fact, as I was saying earlier, that we can manipulate the world, we can create things, we can change the world. So we fall into that trap of thinking the more I have, the more I do, the better I'll be. But I also think there's another element, which is, as we became more conscious of ourselves, the ego began to evolve. And that happened, I think, thousands of years ago. And so we started becoming more self-centered. And to begin with, that didn't really matter too much. It might have caused strife within 
individual families or within villages. And in fact, the history of humanity is a lot of warfare and infighting going on and tribal conflicts, which wasn't very nice, and a lot of people suffered because of that, but it wasn't threatening humanity itself. Now, our power has expanded so much and our influence, and that egocentricity is now not only leading to global conflicts and all of that and the rich taking more money from the poor people and all that suffering, it's also polluting the planet, taking all its resources. So what we're seeing is that mode of consciousness, which I think emerged a very long time ago, has now reached a point in the our times, the times we are living in, where we're realizing that has to change. We cannot go on with that mode of consciousness. It was okay, it was useful, it got us where we are, but now we have to leave that behind. We have to. It's like this is the point we've reached in history. We cannot continue with a powerful technology and a consciousness that is stuck in an egocentric mode more appropriate to the past. Right, right, yeah. I mean, and again, we're in conflict, really, today. And it's interesting because I think, possibly, again, I don't know, as a scientist you probably know better, but... Um, as the species evolved, it was very Darwinian. It was very survival of the fittest. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what animals do out in the wild is they scrap and, you know. Um, but we don't need that. Well, we have to reconceptualize it, rethink it. See, what is the fittest now? Is it the person who can run the fastest and mate with the most people? And I don't think it's about physical fitness, about how fast we can run or that sort of stuff or... You know, past has been determined by, you know, who breeds the best, that sort of thing. I don't think the fittest person either is the person who can manipulate the system the best. You might see the fittest person is the person who's got the power in our society. I don't think that's going to count so much in the future. I think real fitness is going to be inner fitness. It's going to be how flexible we are, how in touch with ourselves we are, how in touch with our feelings we are how stable we are inside ourselves, that's going to be the sort of fitness that carries us through in the future. Because I see the future we're moving into is going to be one where there's going to be more and more change. And if we're going to be attached to the past, change is really going to hurt us. We need to be flexible to move with change. Like a, a tree needs to bend with the wind. If you're rigid, it's going to affect us. So I think the Darwinian principles apply it, it will always be survival of the fittest. It's almost a tautology. Those who are most fit are going to survive. Right, right. The question is, what is fitness? And I think the fitness that we're going to need is that inner, personal, spiritual fitness. Right, right, right. Okay. Basically, what we're looking for is not externally, it's an inner healing. Mm -hmm. um, and how do you see that taking place? I think it comes back to being willing to explore ourselves, first of all. And there's many different ways of doing it, but opening up to recognizing that what we need to do is get in touch with ourselves in one way or another. I mean, healing is about making ourselves more whole. The root meaning of to heal is to make whole. So I think we heal ourselves inwardly by opening up and discovering who we are, looking at the different aspects of ourselves. And there's many, many ways of doing that. But it all comes back to being willing to take that risk and explore oneself.
look inside get in touch with get in touch with the feelings get in touch with one's own deeper sense of purpose what's really important begin to question what we're doing do i really need to go and buy this whatever it is we're buying you know what am i doing here to get in touch with our own truth because i think deep inside we all know the truth it's finding the courage to follow that truth rather than the truth which society is telling us through advertising, television, the media, whatever it is, this is what we should be doing. Say, hey, I don't think so. You know, what I really feel is important is this. And that's where friends and community really become important. I think the value of community is helping us stay true to what we know deep inside. Yeah, I mean, it's even just being able to dialogue like this, yeah. you know, just just about it all and about where we are and how we feel. But I think potentially this is the challenging part. So back in the day, um, you know, when we were, you know, Homo sapiens first started or whatever, the darkness was external, again, survival of the fittest yeah, and yeah. other animals. But now as we go inward, the darkness of the feelings. Yeah. And it's, it's being able to actually face that inner darkness. Because yes. uh, there's a, for myself anyway, you know, there's a lot of emotions going on in there. And there's yep. a lot to feel. And, you know, uh, that can be pretty frightening. Can, yeah. But I think that's one reason I know for myself. That's why I often fear looking there. It's like, what am I going to discover? Will I better handle it? Life, I like, you know, on the surface, life's okay. It's pretty comfortable. Do I really want to disrupt things and get in touch with all this messy stuff? We don't know how to do it. There's this lovely Sufi story. You, you may know Nasruddin, who's the sort of wise Sufi fool. And one day he's out at night underneath a street lamp on his hands and knees outside his house looking for something in the dirt. And his neighbor comes across him and says, what are you doing? He says, I've lost the key to my house. And so the neighbor gets down and starts looking with him in the dirt and they're scrabbling around. And after a while, they can't find it. As the neighbor says, well, where did you drop it? And he says, well, somewhere in my house. And so he says, well, what on earth are you doing looking for it out here? He says, well, there's more light out here. Which is, you know, you laugh, but that's exactly what we do. Right, you know, yeah. The key we've lost is the key to how to be at peace in ourselves, to how to be at ease, how to be in touch with ourselves. We've lost that key. And we look for it in the world around because there really is more light in that sense. We know how to manipulate this world. If we want a faster computer, we know how to do it. A more efficient car, we know how to do it. If we want to create new fabrics, we know how to do it. Get in touch with our feelings, being more in touch with ourselves. The mind, the emotions are very mysterious and dark. We don't know what to do there. So we immediately go for the world we know. We go out there. And I think the more we can encourage people, empower them, and not only give them permission, but give them the tools to really look inside and explore themselves. That, I think, that has to be the way, the way forward. Yeah, and so the question becomes, you know, how do we go about doing that? And, or what is it that we need to do that? And the first thing that comes to mind for me is a willingness. Like, and again, this makes me so emotional. So if we're at this crisis and we know that there is no choice, you have to be willing. Yeah. You've got to be willing to sit there and face that inner fear, face those inner demons yeah. in order to get past the hurdle. And well, I think I think there's a lot of things. The willingness, I think the willingness comes from other things as well. It comes from an understanding that it's important, that we need to do that. 
but also maybe realizing it's not certain you can be so fearful. Maybe the fear we have about doing it is right. a misplaced fear. Right. And with, I mean, I found that with the right sort of encouragement with friends, it's like it's not actually that scary. Right. We think it's going to be scary because it's dark. It's yes. like you're going, you know, the key's inside the house, we don't know where to look, but it's actually, there's nothing scary there. It's just because it's un- the unknown is scary. Right. But I think the key to really getting in touch with a lot of feelings is is how we approach them. Oft, often the, the pain or the suffering actually comes from resistance. This is what I've learned so much is, it's the resistance to what is there that creates the pain and difficulty. If we really open up to what is there and just feel it in a more neutral way, and this is, what I think, what's in a lot of meditation practices, just to be more open, mindful of it, it isn't, it isn't nearly so painful as you think. Right, and that's, that's, I think, the key, is turning it from fear to fascination. Yeah. And... I think what you're saying is like <clears throat> cultivating the art of allowing to just be able to sit there yeah, and yeah. allow it to take place, um, but also cultivating a little bit of detachment. So yeah. you're not caught up in it. Yeah. You're allowing it to happen, and then also you're not caught up in it. You're yeah. more observant. Yeah. Yeah. Of what it is. And I think when you <laughs> do that, particularly with the the harder emotional stuff, what you discover is there's two things. There's what's going on in the body. There may be a sense of tension or you know clamping of the hands or something. There's something going on in the body, but there's also something going on in the mind. There's the self-talk, that conversation you're having with yourself. You're saying, oh, I don't like this, this is uncomfortable, this person isn't being the right way, or I want this. And as you become more conscious of that, you'll find it also becomes easy. It's like, oh, I see, I'm just going off on this story I'm telling myself again about how bad this other person is. And it's those two things together that get locked in. What we're telling ourselves in our head, the story we're telling ourselves, reinforces the tension or whatever it is that's going on in the body. The tension in the body makes us feel uptight, and that reinforces the story. Right. When you can see the two things together and see how they reinforce, then the opposite starts happening. It starts quietening down, and you can begin to just step back. But, but we get caught up in it when we get caught up in the stories we're telling ourselves and the feelings, and just by stepping back from it is a very important step sure yeah absolutely um and personally but also like in a bigger frame of reference as well um you know because really the inner war i suppose is the microcosm of the outer war absolutely um the whole thing how can we be at peace with other people if we can't be at peace in ourselves it's so true and how can we love another person if we don't truly love ourselves i mean and again, you know, it goes back to that same thing. Because I don't have love for myself, I'm seeking right. to try to acquire right. it. Uh, even, instead of giving it, I'm yeah. seeking to try to acquire it. <clears throat> or even knowing what love is. I mean, the, so often we think of love as being, you know, being appreciated, being liked, being wanted. And yet to me, love is a feeling. We have, what we really want is that feeling of love, which is just what happens when the heart begins to open. There's that feeling there, and that's what we want. It's that lovely, delicious feeling. And it's about yeah. being in love with ourselves. It's not so much loving ourselves. Oh, I love myself because I think I'm a great being and I'm, you know, like. I'm pretty. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> oh, which I'm is so back, pretty. Yeah. It's back to appreciating oneself. And isn't that? It's about finding love in oneself. Just loving. To me, loving oneself is just loving that 
essence of self, which is just that sense of being, which is lovable. Just one's own being is lovable. Nothing particular about it. Not because you're, you know, clever or pretty or all that stuff, but just that sense of highness is actually a lovable experience. That sense of inner ease and peace that we discover when we let go is lovable in itself. Right. How do you think intuition falls in there? Is that part of where we're going in this feeling-based in connection yeah, to spirit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, intuition for me, first of all, I like the root meaning. It's the tu- it's the teaching that comes from within. It's intuition as opposed to outer tuition. And I think we all have what I call our innate intelligence. Some people call it the wisdom mind. I think we have a lot of knowingness inside us which we don't access because we are so caught up in this thinking mode of the doing, the external focus. And I think we get in touch with this inner knowing, our intuition, when we're quiet. If our minds are busy and we're listening to this self-talk, we're so busy listening to the dialogue that's going on inside our head telling us what's right and what we're doing and what's wrong and what's happening. We can't hear the intuition. It's often called the quiet inner voice and it's very quiet. So in order to hear the quiet inner voice, we've got to be quiet. You don't pick up your intuition very easily if you're busy running around the world doing things, talking to yourself. The whole time. Monkey mind. Yeah. The monkey mind. The monkey mind. Yeah. So in order to access your intuition, again, we've got to learn to quieten the mind, to step out of this doing mode, this thinking mode. And then I think there's incredible wisdom there. And for me, the way I look at intuition, it's not about knowing things, knowing what's happening across town or somewhere else on the planet or what's going to happen in the future. Those things, there's an aspect of intuition there that may may be true. The intuition I'm excited by is our inner knowing about what's right for us, about how to live our lives, about how to relate to other people, because that, I think, is there in all of us. That's the stuff we lose. For example what we talked about earlier, about how we all get stuck in this chasing after things, thinking if only I've got more money, whatever it is, more power, more fame, I'll be happier. Deep inside, we all know that isn't really true. That's our intuition. We know that basically it's about how we live our lives, how we approach our lives, and we all know people who may not have much money at all, but are much happier than those who have. We know that inside. So it's about how do we get in touch with that inner knowing when the whole of our society is barraging us with the opposite. Right. And so that is, it's partly learning how to be quiet, how to listen to that inner voice. And one of the things I use that's very important is continually ask myself when I'm in a difficult situation, is there another way of looking at this? Is there another way of seeing this situation? And just waiting and seeing what bubbles up from underneath. And often my intuition comes up with things that are maybe a lot more compassionate towards the other person, things that feel a lot easier, that feel more right. I need to step out of that holding, clinging mindset into this deeper knowing. Right, right. And I guess my only other curiosity is, because I have a lot of friends who are psychic. Mm -hmm. Um, Where do you think all those sort of abilities fall within the scheme of, you know, our evolution? Or where do they fall as far as, like, is intuition connected to that? It's all in the same area, yes. I think 
it's so hard to get this stuff to be scientifically verifiable, although there's more and more evidence coming through. My own feeling is I think there are abilities we all have. You say some of your friends are psychic. I think we all are. And most people have had experiences of dreams of people across the world where they you know, picked up something that's happening. Things like we know someone's going to phone when they do, those sorts of things. They, they come through very much at that feeling level, that sort of unconscious level. We pick them up as feelings or in our dreams or it's just a vague hunch. We all have that. I think what we call psychic people are people who are much more open to that, who have a greater command of how to access that sort of stuff. But I think it's there in all of us, and I think it's there in animals as well. But I, I think rather than trying to develop the psychic stuff, I think, and this is what most of the spiritual traditions say, is go for the awakening, go for the quietening of the mind, go for the getting in touch with yourself, and you'll find these things spontaneously begin to emerge. It's a false path to go chasing after them. Right. And again, it's the ego. Sure, yeah. another thing I'm, to I'm going to be a psychic. Yeah. I know about the future. <laughs> right. I can predict stuff. Right. I know right. what you're thinking. It's just the human ego. Okay? Right, right, right. But you'll find the greatest joy is the getting more in touch with yourself, finding that inner ease. And then you'll find you just maybe pick up more of this stuff. It's a bonus. Right, it just comes about. Yeah. And so do you think that that's part of the curve then that we're heading towards? Yes. Yeah. If we are heading towards that species that does go in and get quieter, yeah. then perhaps we are heading to a telepathic species or something like that, you know? To a species that uses its natural telepathy, that is more aware of its telepathy and uses it. Yes, yeah, I think so. It does seem as if Peter is suggesting that inner peace is available to all of us if we just sort of let go of our constant striving. That's right. That's right. The inner wisdom, not always looking outside or not uh, holding on too tightly to material reality physicalism. He's trying to deconstruct physicalism and materialism and open up into greater levels of awareness, um, uh, deeper relationships with consciousness as the fundamental reality, and then peace as our birthright, as something that we can all tap into. Absolutely. He seems to be suggesting that the last 400 years or so of scientific progress, as, as wonderful as it has been, uh, might lead to our downfall if we can't change our consciousness. That's right. I think Peter um, is very uh, pragmatic, if you will, very sort of neutral. On the one hand, he sees the global brain. Uh, I think after this interview, he went on to write a book called The Global Brain. So he sees the interconnectedness and the availability that the internet brings and uh, AI in general. However, yes, it, it can also lead to our downfall. So we have to do the inner work, I think, is one of the key messages that's being brought forth in this interview, is do the inner work. Go into the darkness, but in that darkness, you will find the keys in order to liberate and release oneself into a greater level of consciousness and awareness. I also had the sense that Peter is suggesting that there's something about the, the masculine consciousness on, on this planet that has gotten out of balance and that the, the feminine values of intuition and emotion are, are needed to uh, readjust our balance.
Yes, he is bringing forward that message. Uh, incidentally, that's also a message in Jungian oriented depth psychology. That would be a big message that Jung was bringing forth. Also, you yourself uh, bringing forth uh, uh, the importance of the intuitive self and intuitive abilities. And I, I couldn't agree more. And the patriarchy, if we could say it that way, um, knowledge is great. Intellect is wonderful, but we all have a limbic system. We all have an emotional body, a feeling function. Um, Western science didn't really begin to study that until the 1990s. And now I think we can see we're making greater strides in understanding what is the emotional body, what is the feeling function. And if we continue to open up into that level of understanding and the wisdom, that emotion and feeling, and if we could go back to the ancient sages who speak about the heart chakra, anahata, the sound that is made when two things are not struck, I think that uh, we really have an opportunity to expand and optimize our human potential. The soundless sound. The soundless sound, that's right. The gateless gate. <laughs> well, I should also let our viewers know there's a more recent interview with Peter Russell on the New Thinking Aloud channel. It's a year or two old in which his theme was letting go of letting go. <laughs> in, in which he, I'll link to it here once again in the upper right hand corner of uh, of the screen. And, and Peter is suggesting even striving to let go. We need to let go of that one too. That's right, because the mind, right? It's the mind it gra grasps, and it's really the mind we want to relax. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea of pure consciousness. It will, it's just there underneath it all. So relax the mind so all that intuitive wisdom can come forward because it's structured in the field. Well, Leanne, I'm so delighted uh, to be with you and to reflect with you on the work you did 18 years ago with, with Peter Russell. And of course, we'll uh, remind our viewers that in the coming weeks, we'll be releasing two more of these older interviews, one with Russell Targ and another one with Gary Zukoff. So, thank you, Leanne, so much for uh, sharing this material with me and with the New Thinking Aloud audience. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to be here with you and with the New Thinking Aloud community. So, thank you for welcoming me back. And I hope everybody. Uh, again, dives into the timeless wisdom that's brought forth through yourself and these other interviews. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? 
New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.